right, welcome back to Mid Wretched, lovely, lovely, lovely friends. Hello, friends. We hope you're doing well out there. We do. Yes, we sure do. These are long summer days, both emotionally and physically. So <laughs> take be sure to take extra care of yourselves. We're just extolling the virtues of hydration. Um, <laughs> it's very important to stay hydrated. The times they be rough, friends. The times they be rough. They do be rough. So hydrate or dehydrate because we have so little control over anything. And one thing you can control is how much water goes into your body. Dear friends, this is probably going to sound weird because we, we're recording these completely out of order because your girl Mick fucked up on her technology and episoding. So... This episode was recorded like two weeks ago and it sounded terrible. So we are back now re-recording it, trying to do better because we really want to do this case, especially justice. So, yeah. Yeah. And it was just a technical hiccups. Like these things happen. We all know technology is hard. So, yeah, it's a re-recording and we are just going to do what we do, right? Before we get to our story, we probably should officially denounce Billy Jensen. Um, Kind of important right now for those that are uh, not in the know. um, Pretty prominent true crime uh, podcaster, Billy Jensen. We have referred to him at some points in our show as our podcast daddy um, and other such sexualized comments um, about our (laughs) former crushes on this man. Um, uh, that are gone now. They're gone. Uh, they're gone. Uh, as some uh, sexual harassment and abuse allegations have come out against him. Yeah. Um, so just know that if you listen to our back catalog and we make little comments about enjoying Billy Jensen, uh, know that we no longer enjoy him. And yeah. yeah. We still love Paul Holes, though. Still love Paul Holes. Um, I've been just been thinking about this a lot in this and other things that have just come out recently about who we let tell our stories and who yes. we let tell the stories of victims. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially in true crime, we owe each other better yes. to yeah. not prey on and harm one another. Yes, uh, totally, totally. And I, I we've had a lot of like background conversations about like what responsibilities do we have as people with like, you know, some sort of like presence in this scope. However small. Crime. Yeah. Yeah. Don't stop besmirching us. We're doing great. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that's a, so I think we do have a responsibility to like, you know, call out poor behavior and um, not just like quietly scrub our catalogs and pretend it didn't happen. No, I think talking about it and admitting to it and having a discussion about it is important because I also I hate the whole like discourse around like as cancel culture. Like, no, like there there's a reason why I think that we both feel compelled to say something. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I could rant all day about the idea of people hating on cancel culture. Like, God forbid that you have a fucking consequence for your poor behavior. Right. Like, right. I don't understand why that's a that's a bad thing. God forbid you be held accountable for yeah. causing harm, however big or little, or anywhere in between. 
Yeah. But there's a consequence for that. And Especially that within the true crime I, realm where we talk so much about appropriate, like, consequences and repercussions for actions and these type of things, right? And self-advocacy and holding one another accountable and, yeah. Mm. yeah. I had a thought and then I completely lost it. Uh, that's because I interrupted you. I'm sorry. That's fine. <laughs> I haven't talked to any grown-ups today adult conversation hi i don't have to talk to you in like a high-pitched baby voice i am also slightly just mentally discombobulated because um we had to say goodbye to the lovely and amazing and so kick-ass murder beagle um so my mind has not been fully right all week so yeah and so we just i love you friend and we Thank won't dwell on this too long because we've already had tears on this call Oh, God, I've been crying all week. (laughs) I know, I know. So uh, let's turn over the crying to me as I tell this story. How's that? Yeah, yeah, this story is a tearjerker. It is, yeah, it is for me. So you ready for me to get started? I'm ready for you to get started. Uh, Okay, friends. So uh, today we are going to be discussing the murder case of Stephanie Mori. And we're going to start with a little shout out. This is a listener request which um, is very exciting. We, we love listener requests. We have not yet said no to a listener request. Um, <laughs> I hope we never do. No. And like this case has actually spawned another request that I'm working on um, very diligently. So hopefully that comes to fruition as well. But yeah, so it's a listener request. So shout out to Olivia. Thank you for telling us about your town and uh, giving us this <laughs> case to talk about and this young girl to pay tribute to and so really this is all about dedicating space to stephanie's memory as well that's awesome and i will say just to get out ahead of it you went so far above and beyond to get everything together for this case like really really you did such an amazing amount of legwork i'm so glad that you took it because you you went down routes I don't think that I would have been brave enough to go down. Yeah, well, we'll talk about those as we go, but I'm, a, I'm unemployed. So. <laughs> okay, I should say brave enough and have time to yeah. go down. <laughs> uh, so all that said, let's talk about Marissa, Illinois a little bit. Marissa, uh, Illinois. Marissa, Illinois. It is about the most classic, a small town you could possibly get in the Midwest. It has just shy of 2,000 people. It's the kind of town where um, you ha- can have, like, an exact measure of the population, right? Like, it's not an approximation. It's, like, <laughs> down to the last single toddler, basically. 873 um, people. Right. Exactly. So I asked our listener to give us, you know, kind of her rundown of what Marissa is like. And uh, she shared with me that she describes it to most people as, quote, a few churches, a four-way stop, and a Casey's. Perfect. Very perfect. We love a Casey's. <laughs> My cat was born under a Casey's. So. I was going to say, very integral to the Midwest. It is. It is. It is. And very close to my heart, because I wouldn't have my cat if it weren't for a Casey's. in a breakfast Indiana. pizza. Oh, and I love that breakfast pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if, if you can picture that, I would also picture... You know, kind of a downtown strip that businesses, perhaps new businesses don't tend to survive. Like, it's a tight-knit community. It's kind of one of these places where it's like, it's not thriving. It is 
kind of sustaining itself on the same basic shoestring that it has for pretty much its entire inception. Um, <laughs> like so many towns of this size in this area, mine included. So it seems like our towns are actually very similar to each other. I was going to say, it, it sounds a lot like your town. Like, yeah. I can't get a pizza delivered because it's too far away from anything. Oh, <laughs> God. Like I know. Shops. <laughs> the worst. The worst. So, uh, and kind of like my town, and I like so many of these towns. It's so classic Midwestern, right? Where, like, you've got kind of, like, a downtown strip and then, you know, maybe a couple of rows of, like, the old homes, you know, the historic homes in town. And then lots of, like, kind of prefab, working class, middle class kind of housing neighborhoods, uh, that kind of stuff. Its political vibe is pretty conservative, obviously not uncommon for a small town in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Olivia described it as stuffy <laughs> in that way, which stuffy. I like that word choice. Yeah, <laughs> um, That's a good word choice. Stuffy. Uh, historically known for coal mining and still home to the annual coal fest in the summer. Ooh, um, sounds fancy. It's... it's um, carnival or fair or whatever Uh, is there a coal queen i sure hope so i really hope there's a coal queen i really hope so so uh here in laporte indiana right now it is the um laporte county fair and the county fair is happening like at the belgonis farm i'm like why is nobody talking about the fact that this is happening like on this property (laughs) it's like oh my god (laughs) can you have like a like a reenactment like a can you like do people dress up as like belgunas and i mean that's probably way too dark nobody cares but me so oh would i dress up as belgunas yes (laughs) could i pull it off no at least once a week i drive past one of the locations of the Chicago Rippers murders oh, like every really? week and every and I'm like I wonder if anybody else knows about this <laughs> I know I have that feeling all the time all I drove down that road again today after I got my donkeys and I was like does anyone know do you know do you know where your ass is yeah. do you know like anyway. I do like my white girl Sundays where it's like <laughs> yoga target home depot Duncan. <laughs> And I drive past the Breer Rabbit Hotel, the motel. Oh, my gosh. That's perfect. (laughs) You're white girl Sundays. I love that. Tell me that's not a white girl Sunday. No, it totally is. It totally is. You're you're definitely in your, like, white lady in her 30s timeline, for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No other Um, timeline I want to be in. Amen. Amen. Except one with, you know, reproductive rights and autonomy. Right. For sure. But, anyway, back to Marissa. Yeah. Uh, so uh, geographically, Marissa is uh, about an hour out of St. Louis into the Illinois side. So it's on the um, just east of the Missouri border. So your like big city for shopping would be suburban St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Definitely started by a lot of rural area. Um, and Marissa was mostly kind of formed from southern migrants uh, who came up after the Civil War. So my favorite fun fact about Marissa is that there have actually been two Marissas. Um, Old Marissa was the original town, which was settled by a guy named John Lively. So you have like the original Marissa. And then Marissa Station, a.k.a. New Marissa, popped up as a result of the railroad. Yeah. Scandalous. I know, a scandalo. So now they uh, are combined into one Super Marissa, as I call it. Super Marissa. The Super Marissa. Oh, wow. Um, it's actually like south of St. Louis. Yeah, it's southeast. Mm-hmm. There's huh. a lot of Illinois 
Believe it or not, Chicagoan. <laughs> There's Illinois outside of suburban Chicago. Weird, right? That is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I only know of Chicago and vaguely about Champaign. Yeah. No, there's there's more more Illinois than that. Huh. Yeah. Look at all this state I'm looking at at Google Maps. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, go ahead. So uh, Marissa, like most small towns, uh, doesn't see a lot of crime. So when Stephanie Mori was killed, it had been 40 years since the last murder in Marissa. And yeah, I just think that's when those things happen, uh, they really shake up these small towns. So that's really something to, I don't know, to remember. We had a a very high profile, awful murder in this town uh, about two years ago. Uh, At some, at some point I'll talk about it, but there's weird things going on um, in court right now, but, Uh, um, but it just like, shook up this town so much and so i imagine that this case as well so even though it has not gotten any kind of national media attention whatsoever barely any local coverage but for Mm -hmm. some reason uh this stuck into our listeners head i don't even think that she was born yet when this case happened but for some reason this is kind of like in the ethos of of this town or the fabric of this town I feel like when you live in a small town and like something like that happens, it's like part of the history of the town. It's part of the the tale of yeah. It becomes the town. part of the fabric of it. And in a town this small, you will inevitably know somebody who knows somebody that's mm. affiliated in some way with this case, right? Yeah, that's got to be so weird. Yeah, I'd imagine so. So uh, let's talk about Stephanie Mori a little bit. I. Would also give a shout out to Stephanie's sister, who uh, ended up giving me a lot of really beautiful personal information about Stephanie and kind of what she was like. And so uh, Stephanie's sister described her as a pretty typical 13 year old. We're going to be in the summer of 1995. So Stephanie was 13 in that summer. She, according to her sister, liked boys, loved country music. (laughs) I love her. And wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up. She sounds so just genuine. Yeah. Just such a, uh, yeah, small town 13-year-old girl. Yeah, just a sweet. Loves boys, countries, music, mm-hmm. pets. God. Yeah, exactly. She also loved writing stories. So she loved creative writing. Um, and she was known to steal her sister's clothes a lot. Same, same. <laughs> every um, day I could get away with it. Every day you could, I'm sure. So uh, she was, uh, you know, had lots of friends, solid social circle, pretty solid student at the Marissa Junior Senior High School. This is such a small town that it's like one school, you know, for everybody. So, you know, pretty, pretty typical, well-loved, sweet 13-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read now a little poem that was written uh, in the yearbook that year from a couple of her friends that I think can kind of tell you a lot about, you know, who Stephanie was to her friends and um, kind of how this, you know, impacted her community as well. So this is Forever Friends by Kit Kat and Wiggy. <laughs> I assume that Stephanie would know who those people are. They um, sound wonderful, whoever they yes, are. Yes, they do. They totally do. So this is, this is what they had to say. Steph was sweet. Steph was kind. She could touch you with her mind. She was never selfish. She took nothing away. She was thoughtful to that very day. 
Steph is in heaven, that I trust. She's up there now watching over us. If you ever feel lost or alone, Steph will be with you from that day on. (sighs) I know I said this last time, and of course our listeners don't know this, but it's just, it's very sweet Mm -hmm. to hear like, poetry from middle schoolers about somebody that they just cared about like it's just it's so authentic and it's so just full of emotion yeah and just that pure like preteen or young teen friendship you know yeah and that's you know i i like i said like a case like this can get lost to time but um Mm -hmm. certainly like stephanie's memory is not lost for those that knew her right so of course yeah. Like, I'm sure those friends still think about her. Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, like I said, in the summer of 1995, things seemed to be going along fairly normally. Uh, Stephanie came from a lovely family. Uh, her parents were Stephen and Delilah Mori. Uh, Delilah went by D. Uh, and she had, like I said, an older sister, Shannon. The family lived in a trailer just south of town. So not in town proper, but just south of town. There were some kind of lakes and ponds around it, lots of open farmland. Uh, It just looks like a pretty peaceful place. If if, uh, like looking at the property on Google Maps, it's like set off from the road. So you'd have to kind of like drive in. I don't think you could probably see it from the road. Um, Okay. So just, I don't know. It it looks to me like a very peaceful place to live and probably a lovely place to to grow up, especially if you're an animal person because you've got like wildlife around and lots of place for your dogs to run and that sort of stuff. (laughs) So the one thing that wasn't normal that summer was that uh, Stephanie's cousin, Joey Skaggs, had come to stay with the family. So Mm -hmm. Skaggs was a 23-year-old from suburban Nashville, Tennessee. And why precisely he came to stay, you can only find like one reference to in any source um, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he had come to stay with the Morris to recover from a drug addiction. Okay. We don't know what drug he was kicking. We don't know the severity of that addiction. We don't know if mm-hmm. it was like, he's 23, he's getting into a little bit of trouble. His parents are like, go somewhere yeah. and get out of your environment. Um, yeah, like, we just need to move you away from, like, the people you're around mm-hmm. or whatever. Or is this like, you know, he was getting very deep into the addiction this was like a last kind of hope yeah from what shannon had said it it didn't sound like his behavior was like outwardly disconcerting Mm -hmm. so it doesn't sound to me that he was like in like active withdrawal or something like that where it was like Mm -hmm. obvious what was happening you know Um, so what my guess is that it was probably more closer to the former like get him out of his environment get him around like whoever was you know dragging him down or whatever But so his behavior wasn't outwardly disconcerting to anybody other than Stephanie. Stephanie had expressed to a couple of her friends uh, kind of throughout the summer that she had just found him creepy uh, and felt uncomfortable with him in the home. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an you're 13. You have this person that's 23 that it sounds like probably she didn't know very well. She wasn't close to. Right. Yeah. Kind of jumping into the family that's kind of dealing with their own struggles, Mm -hmm. substance wise and likely mental health wise. Yeah. And so it's hard to say 
there's no citation for like precisely what kind of behavior that she was seeing that she was felt creeped out by, or if it was just kind of a general vibe. One friend of hers told the newspaper, this friend, uh, her name was Loretta Asher, told the newspaper that in just the couple of weeks prior to Stephanie's murder that uh, she had shared specifically that she was uncomfortable with him staying there to Loretta. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. Um, Joey staying there also meant the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that it has to be in tough for like the parents too, because like, yeah, it sounds like they're trying to do right by a family member and trying to support a family member. And I, again, I imagine that any 13 year old would be creeped out by that. And the parents just kind of, you know, trying to be supportive and trying to be Mm -hmm. like, Hey, like it's just for a little while and just until he gets on his feet, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think, like, your barometer for creepy... At 13 at is, 13 like, the is, ground. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, everyone's kind of creepy, which is, is in no way, shape, or form to insinuate that I don't think that he was creepy, because I, I do, in fact, think that he was creepy. Yeah. And it turns out that he's not a good guy. So, uh, but yeah, there's there's no specific, like behavior to point to and it sounded like the family like you said was kind of just told her like you know he's here he's not going to be here forever you know let's just kind of grit our teeth and get through it pretty much was there any indication that he had done or said anything specifically to her or any like events or no nothing so what i pick up on is just kind of a she didn't like his she didn't like his vibe. Maybe she didn't like his tone of voice. She didn't like his presence. But it, that does not exclude the possibility that he would have said creepy yeah. things to her. Of course. Certainly. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's just that her friends did not say that directly to any mm-hmm. particular source, right? Yeah. 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 Got it. So um, Joey being there also meant that Stephanie and Shannon were a little bit displaced. So they, the sisters were bunking together. Uh, That's how we know kind of a lot about the morning of August 29th, 1995. Started off pretty typical. Shannon got ready for work uh, and Stephanie got ready for school. We're like barely into the school year. Their dad, Stephen, had also gone to work for the day. I don't know where Dee was, but I assume she was also working. What we know is that Stephanie would have arrived home in the afternoon and she would have arrived alone other than Joey Skaggs would have been there. Um, but her sister and her parents would not have been, she would have been the first one home for the day. Okay. 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 So uh, we know that by the late afternoon or early evening, Stephanie and Joey Skaggs were in the trailer alone. Um, Mm -hmm. Shannon had gone straight from work to her boyfriend's house and Stephen went to work and then out fishing. Okay. And again, I'm not sure where their mom was, but it's not consequential to the case. Sounds like it was a busy family. People going in yeah, and out. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mine is very a lot much to like do. that too. Yeah. yeah. A lot to do. So this is where things get rough. When I talk about kind of what comes next, there's not a lot of information about the, the total specifics of the scene itself. Uh, so when I first started looking into the case, the, the first thing I tried to do was get a hold of the um, medical examiner's report or the coroner's report. Usually that is a fairly simple request that one makes to (laughs) (laughs) usually, (laughs) usually sometimes you pay five to $15 for it. Other times they're like, there you go. Sometimes you get 
what you can get for free is just like a, a basic coroner's report. Uh, if you want to pay for like an ME's report, you can you can do that. As it turns out, St. Clair County, Illinois, where this case takes place, only keeps their coroner's records for 20 years. So the nice people at the coroner's office were like, yep, uh, we don't have this for you. I'm sorry. And it's not very long. I can't. I know. 20 years. That's yeah. two, 2002. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was very surprised by that. I will say, though, that the their county coroner, as much as I, you know, how I feel about county coroners, um, has a very lovely smile. And <laughs> <laughs> OK, I, I enjoyed his his little picture, his little portrait on the website. What's his name? I want to Google uh, him. His secretary was very nice. Uh-huh. St. Clair County? Mm-hmm. Aww. Yes. Kelvin Dye Sr. What a cutie patoot. What a cutie. But Aww. as it goes, they don't keep their uh, reports for very long, which, you know, by and large, they probably don't have a huge reason to. Yeah. Not a whole hell of a lot happens in this town. I can imagine. Oh, you can buy autopsy reports for $50? Yes, you can. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> I'm sure they don't generally, like, have a big need to keep those records for most people. No. Like, yeah, it's like old medical records where right. there's, like, nothing wonky or weird about them. Like, yeah. you keep them as long as you're legally and ethically required to. And then... Yeah. The only thing that bothers me specifically about this, though, is that within this county, uh, there is one fairly large town, East St. Louis, Illinois. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And that is a, f- a fairly high crime rate city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want some records from more than 20 years ago from that town as well. And I already <laughs> know that they're going to tell me we ain't got them. And I'm going to be like, tell me where the burn pile is. I will drive and I will dig my little hands in that dirt and I will find it because I need it. I mean, if it's like medical records, we put them in acid. So I'm not I mean, if you want to like do the dip, if you want to do like <laughs> Judge Doom in the dip and try that, go for it. As much as that's on my little bucket list, uh, I don't know. So all that to say... When we talk about the scene here, um, a lot of it comes firsthand from um, Stephanie's sister uh, and what little kind of made it to the newspapers. So what we do know is this. Stephen came home from his fishing outing and he found his 13-year-old daughter stabbed to death. Stephanie had been stabbed twice to the upper chest and neck area and a knife was left behind at the scene. Otherwise, the home was empty. Mm-hmm. And it was empty of Joey Skaggs as well. So I want to kind of talk for a minute just about like the what the what this was like for the family uh, to, to come home to this. Mm-hmm. So immediately, obviously, Stephen called uh, for help. Police and ambulances were called and surrounded the, the trailer. Uh, they lived in kind of a, um, a it looked like kind of a double wide trailer. So someone had told Shannon, Stephanie's sister, there were police at her home. She didn't know why, but she was at her boyfriend's house. So I assume it was just a friend that was also hanging out. Mm-hmm. She sped home from the boyfriend's house. And at this point, there's a perimeter around around her home. Um, 
and parks her car as close as she can to the perimeter of the scene, leaps from the car, runs into the scene, frantically asking what's going on. Uh, she's asking police what's going on. She doesn't see any of her family members at this point. And then her dad emerges from a police car, takes her into his arms, and says, the baby is gone. Oh, my God. So I just want to, again, like, cases get lost to time. But, again, they don't get lost in, in people's memories that are close to it. And I just want to respect that, you know? Um, I, it hurts my soul so much that her dad was like, the baby is gone. Like, she's still his baby girl. Yeah, and that's obviously kind of the role that she took in this family, right? That's that's who she was to her family. So, you know, I don't think that words can describe just the the dread and immediate grief that came in those, you know, immediate moments after getting back to the home, realizing what was going on, dealing with the flashing lights and the police asking questions Mm -hmm. and, you know, where was everybody and what do you know about her habits and... What would her timeline have been for the day? Just the overwhelmingness of that scene, you know? Yeah. Um, Set amid this, like, far out, like, far out from the roadside fields and and wild. Just kind of imagining, like, the, just Mm -hmm. the bucolic dread of that, you know? So it did not take long for police to figure out that the missing link here was Joey Skaggs. Yeah, it seems pretty direct. Yeah. Uh, He was unaccounted for. So a search did go out for him that night, but nothing came up uh, until early the next morning. It sounds like it was a little bit after dawn that he was found wandering along a roadside nearby. My assumption is that he hid out somewhere for the night, probably just in nature, and then was walking around. He went peacefully into police custody and was charged immediately with first-degree murder. Um. So hearings were set up right away, and uh, no trial could begin until a mental fitness to stand trial exam was ordered and took place. And so we're going to talk about that for a little while here. So um, (laughs) the thing was, this was straightforward in the sense that we know who did it with what and when. It was Joey Skaggs. Um, He stabbed her in the trailer sometime in the late afternoon to early evening hours. We know that. There's no mystery there. The mystery here is why did this happen? And how the rest of this kind of goes down legally can tell us at least a little bit about how or why something like this can happen and does happen. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about mental fitness to stand trial. We will be talking about this (laughs) a lot in the coming weeks. So I'm just going to lay down some foundation. So it's really important to know that there is a legal standard for competency to stand trial. Mm -hmm. This was set uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1960s case uh, Dusky versus United States. At this point, SCOTUS did something right. The court determined, quote, it is not enough for the district judge to find that the defendant is oriented to time and place and has some recollection of events, but the test must be whether he has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and -hmm. whether he has a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him. Mm -hmm. So the short way to put that is, is this person able to participate in their own defense? Yes. So that's their competency to stand trial, which is different from insanity at the time of the crime. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a really important difference. And I feel like uh, we see those two things 
misconstrued a lot or interchanged uh, when they're actually very, very, very different. So, and and they 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 happen together very often. Obviously, yeah. But they are also two standalone constructs. Yeah, um, I will also know that it took three years for this exam to be conducted between uh, when it was ordered and when it was actually able to take place. And that is due to a tremendous backlog in people who have the ability to conduct these exams. My forensic psych friends, I'm sure, are screaming about why. Yeah. There are there is a dearth of good quality forensic psychologists and doing a forensic evaluation is really, really labor intensive. Yeah. Like I I really do think that a lot of people just assume, oh, you just sit with the person for 20, 30 minutes and then you write up a report and you say yay or nay. It is a, if done properly yeah. and appropriately, it is a very, very intensive activity where you are going through records, you're doing validity assessments mm-hmm. to ensure that they're, not, that they're not faking it. You want to interview them multiple times to ensure that they're still competent. Mm-hmm. And that's in the case of like forensic things like this. I have a, a dear, dear friend. Hi, Dr. Mindy. Um, that we'll be talking to in a later episode. Yes, queen. To kind of talk about competency evaluations and yeah. because she does some of these in skilled nursing facilities um, to determine like, hey, does this person understand what's going on and are they capable of making decisions and consulting and things like that for themselves? Yeah. But, but they are time intensive and I'm guessing in the 90s in rural Indiana, Illinois. there were not many forensic psychologists available no and you know what's crazy though is that i was reading um just to kind of see like how does this stand now it's way worse now than it was in the 90s or even before that in the 80s it is now at this point people are waiting many 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 years and it is like you said it's it's very these things are very very thorough and very time intensive and they have to be because if they are not then the evaluation itself can be called into question in a court proceeding. And then yeah. you've basically lost all your ducks at that point. And I think most psychologists, I, I hope I'm going to support my field here, take this job very seriously and saying like, no, if somebody's life is on the line and somebody's liberty and freedom is on the line, but there's also a victim, like I really want to do I really want to do justice to this case. And like, I can even say I don't do forensic evaluations. I do um, neuropsych and, you know, developmental neurodiversity, learning differences, that sort of thing. And mental health evaluations. And even those, I know plenty of places that have a one year, two year waiting list to get those types of services. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And and these are, like you said, these are really, really intense. I want to talk a little bit about, one of the types of evaluations that will be used. And this is, you know, within the context of, you know, all of these other things that you mentioned, (laughs) but there are like specific assessment tools that are used. Mm -hmm. And I believe that one of these was used uh, specifically in this case. Yeah. So um, the, the most common ones, there are three that are very commonly used. You've got the MacArthur competence assessment tool, criminal adjudication, adjudication, abbreviated to the catchy term Metcatka. Metcatka. Yes. We love to give things really dumb. Yeah. There's no way for that to roll off your tongue at all. Then you've got the evaluation of competency to stand trial revised, 
and the competence assessment for standing trial for defendants with mental retardation, which is called the CASPER. I um, am strongly under the impression that he was given a version of the MCATCA, the competence assessment tool, criminal adjudication assessment. His particular mental health status, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's specifically when it comes to competence to stand trial, what you're talking about, like we said, is the ability for you to participate in your own defense, to understand the charges against you, to understand the proceedings against you, mm-hmm. to understand the, the consequences of those proceedings, and to understand what specifically and completely you're being accused of. Yes. Right. So this assessment uses a vignette format, so a short story scenarios, basically which are uh, scored to measure three competence-related abilities, understanding, reasoning, and appreciation. Do you know what happened? Do you know why it happened? And do you understand the gravity of what happened, basically? Yeah, and I think that those those standards are pretty, like, well-known. Like, I think most people can understand those standards. I will kind of just give a caveat here. You cannot Google search or get much research on these. They are very, very strongly protected. For very good because, reasons. Because, yeah, for very good reasons because of this. Like, I have to submit documentation and submit, like, my licensure and everything to get approved to buy certain tests. Mm-hmm. I am certain that you would have to submit a lot of stuff to get yes. these assessments. Yes. Yeah, so when you can find descriptions of these assessments, like know that these are as tight a description as you can get about these. The way that the test is also structured is that it's built around these like hypothetical vignettes about a hypothetical defendant and a hypothetical crime in a way that basically like introduces these legal issues and legal terms in a way that is removes the defendant from the specifics of their own case. So it needs to be about a case that is not like their case to be able to measure their understanding, reasoning, and appreciation. One thing I find really interesting is that uh, the norms for the MCATCA are based on the scores of 729 defendants. And that score range puts people into one of three buckets. Mm -hmm. None or minimal impairment, mild impairment, and clinically significant impairment. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me about that is that it's normed for 729 defendants, but we don't know within that 729 if it's normed for any other factors. Age, race, sex. I, I, I guarantee if you get a hold of the manual, it would have that broken down for you in the I testing so. manual. Yeah, in the testing manuals, it has. I could fucking pull out a manual and it breaks down like literally so many demographics, yeah. so many things. Because we do have to prove if we're asked, especially in a court. Yeah. How did you choose this test? Was it appropriate for this person based on their gender, their race, their reading level, that sort of thing? Yes, yeah. There are a lot of considerations that you have to take when you're properly choosing a test. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. And one thing that kind of interests me about about this case and other cases as well is like, okay, so this... Um, based on this type of evaluation, Joey Skaggs was ruled not fit to stand trial. Mm -hmm. And as such, when he pled guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity, that plea was accepted by the court, uh, even though there it's not one-to-one, that assessment is not about insanity. It made the setup of his insanity defense a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, the court records for this case are sealed because 
once things become uh, an issue of when somebody is officially ruled not fit to stand trial, then those records just get like sucked right back up by the state. Basically, we're not having a jury trial. We're not doing this in the public sphere. Uh, basically, this thing will happen in a closed courtroom, essentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, what is interesting also about this is that he has been reevaluated three times in the last 22 years. So people are being consistently reevaluated for these things. Because you do want to be able to see, like, okay, in 1995 or 98, when the assessment finally came through, he was not able to reason out what was going on. But will he ever gain that reasoning is always going to be a question mark in the eyes of the justice system. So the reevaluation has to happen. Yeah. Is there a treatment that will allow him to stand withstand punishment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, when he pled... Not guilty by reason of insanity. He was able to be remanded to mental health facilities in the state of Illinois, uh, where he remains to this day. uh, And again, where he undergoes that perpetual reevaluation. So, like I said before, this case is not like some big whodunit mystery. What it is, though, is I think a really good example of how the system works in. And I want to kind of appreciate in a way like the banality of it, like. Not every case is this like, oh my gosh, surprises around every corner. Like, look at this crazy thing Twists that happened. Twists and turns and this and that and the other. Yeah. And, yeah. Do, did we talk about kind of what he was diagnosed with? Or? We're about to. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, we're about to. Um, so, but I just, I want to, I just want to really like hammer home that, you know, when we talk about these cases that have these like crazy you know, situations and outcomes and, and courtroom drama and stuff like that. Those cases represent a very small minority of murder cases and trials that happen in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Successfully pleading and ins- successfully like winning an insanity plea is, is rare, but the rigmarole and process of this case is much more typical yeah. of murder cases in this country um, that you don't hear about. Basically it's, it's a court appearance, court appearance, court appearance, court appearance, status check, status check, status check, status check, status check. Yeah. Um, and there is a banality up to it. Yeah, this is like the grind and the bureaucracy. I think it's really interesting when we talk about like insanity pleas and things like that in the legal system. And people are always like, oh, they're just going to get off and they're going to plead insanity. And I'm like, like, what do you think happens, though? Right. There is just this banality of they're they're just going to a different building essentially. Yeah, and it's and not like it's like a fun place to hang out to be at a, a mental health facility. <laughs> like, no, it's not club med. It's not fun. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, like it's it's rare. Like this particular outcome is rare, but mm-hmm. trials that are basically a lot of paperwork and kind of a an ordinary outcome mm-hmm. are much more common than I think like true crime storytelling wants us to think it is. You know what I mean? And um, although they're common and they like from like the legal courtroom drama aspect of it, they are very banal, but to the family, they're just as emotional. Yeah, exactly. And that is why this show exists <laughs> because we like to talk about those like, 
big twisty turny cases as much as anybody else but i think yeah. we also have like uh, at our core a very strong desire to tell untold stories you know and, and to make those stories understood yeah. i i think for both of us it's not that we just like to tell twisty tellies twisty turny stories just for the drama of it but because there's a teacher in both of us (laughs) (laughs) that likes to we like people to learn about things through stories exactly exactly it's narrative therapy it is narrative therapy so because these court records are sealed uh we don't have like an official diagnosis for joey skaggs what we have is what the family thought that he probably suffered from, which was schizophrenia. When I saw that, that made a lot of sense to me, uh, especially given his age, 23, being a very, very, very common time for schizophrenia symptoms to start appearing. So I was hoping that you could give us a little (laughs) bit of a a miniature crash course in schizophrenia, specifically, uh, well, first, just talk about some symptoms of schizophrenia. All right, so let's do Schizophrenia 101, like we're mm-hmm. in my undergrad yes. psychopathology class. Yes, please. So we talked about this a little bit in the David Box episode. And I like talking about schizophrenia because I feel like it is really, really misunderstood. And people, you know, it's like the go-to, oh, they're crazy kind of label. But there's a lot that goes into schizophrenia. We're constantly learning more about it. I will say it is probably the oldest and most studied mental health diagnosis like for literally hundreds if not thousands of years we have been trying to understand this and we are only ever like inching closer to the stars of understanding (laughs) schizophrenia um so this is a very very broad overview but basically with schizophrenia like you had said we the most common time for symptoms to appear would be in late adolescence to early adulthood so in that kind of like 18 to 25 year old time there are rare instances where it can show up as early as childhood um it very rarely would show up later than the 30s or anything like that at that point we're usually talking about another kind of another diagnosis more neurological more kind of physiological neurological in nature often it comes with like a prodromal stage so a lot more of like the depression and anhedonia and the pulling away we'll see first before some of the other things but when it comes to schizophrenia you have positive and negative symptoms positive think of as something is being added to your life that was not there before or is not naturally there within the general population and then negative symptoms where some part of your life or some part of your cognitive functioning is kind of taken away in terms of negative symptoms what that means is like your ability to show affect, your ability to experience natural variations in mood, happiness and sadness and excitement and, you know, general nervousness and things like that. And it can become very, very flat. Um, There's a highly asocial aspect to a lot of schizophrenia. People kind of pull away. Again, not antisocial, where you're acting against people, where you're naturally causing harm, but an asocial Um, all of this said that as a precursor after the fact, schizophrenia happens on a spectrum. There are people with very severe struggles and high support needs. And there are people where it is more mild and they generally function well. 
you know, with therapy, medication, blah, 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 blah. Um, so there's the negative symptoms where things are being taken away. Oftentimes your kind of your ability to fluidly associate thoughts, your ability to fluidly communicate in an effective and kind of more neurotypical way. I, I always think of this example that I learned from Dr. Abel. Hi, Dr. Abel. Steve! Uh, Steve! Ah, oh, he Love was the him. steviest Steve to ever Steve. <laughs> um, he, he was one of my psychology professors, and he I remember him relating a story from when he worked at a skilled nursing facility with adults, one of his patients that had schizophrenia. And she had kind of been going around the day room and was very, very panicked and very, very frantic and saying, I'm a tomato, I'm a tomato, I'm a tomato. And so he sat with her for a very, very long time trying to decode and go through what she's talking about, what led up to this, what events could she be talking about. And he was, God, the most patient man, because it takes a lot of patience to decode some of this communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that the on the facility, they had had like a sex education like workshop where they learned about like pregnancy and sex and they showed like little pictures of sperm And she thought that the sperm looked like tomato seeds and she had recently had sex and she was scared that she was pregnant and she was going to turn into a tomato because that was the association that clicked in her mind. Mm. Um, So that's the type of kind of loose associations and communication, kind of word salad things that we often associate with schizophrenia. Mm. Again, it's not always to that level and because we have improvements in medication, we have improvements in treatments, oftentimes that's not the way that we'll see the presentation of schizophrenia. Right. And then on the positive symptoms, again, not because they're great, not because they're wonderful, <laughs> um, it's in addition of something. So the positive symptoms include things like paranoia, delusions, hallucinations. Hallucinations can be auditory, visual. Visual hallucinations are actually pretty rare. Um, tactile, even olfactory hallucinations. Tactile hallucinations are most often reported to be the most upsetting. Oh, God. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Jeez. God. I, yeah. I, like, I'm speaking of this from a very, like, (laughs) very plain standpoint, but I get really, really bad eczema and skin issues to the point where, like, my skin hurts. And sometimes, like, I, it feels like something really wonky and that bothers me enough. Or if yeah. you can you ever think of, like, if you heard, like, oh, this kid has lice and then suddenly, like, you're itching your you head. Itchy. Yeah. Right yeah. Now, actually. If you, you feel like that, like, constantly, but then amplify it by a mm-hmm. hundred. Because you might also be hearing other things and seeing mm-hmm. other things and smelling other things. And uh, so, like, as you were talking about that, something that really clicked for me was that, um, you know, we, we do have really good advances in, um, like, medication management of, mm-hmm. of schizophrenia symptoms. But, you know, very often when people first start to experience these symptoms and they might otherwise also have a predilection, um, you do see a lot of drug use. Um, and so when we know that Joey Skaggs was coming to the Maury home to, to kick a drug habit, I do kind of wonder if he was in some ways trying to self-medicate an underlying schizophrenia. 
it would not surprise me whatsoever. Like we see that so, so commonly. I forget like what the rate of severe mental illness and like schizophrenia is qualified as a severe mental illness um, is amongst like homeless people and substance users. Um, it's really, really high though. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people when they don't understand what they're going through like self-medication is a pretty quick route especially i i think about when symptoms first emerge in those high school and college years like god substances are so easily available to you yeah a lot easier than psychiatric drugs like oh it is so much easier to get drugs than to get therapy or yeah. a psychiatrist. There's a huge, huge privilege barrier and who has access to that level of mental health care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we think about it. I'm, I'm thinking about what care and what education would have been available in 1993, 1995. Mm-hmm. God, it would have been crap. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Imagine, so, so. so I am, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he was probably self-medicating. I have to to then like wonder like okay to kind of build the scenario of what may have happened here like that day uh, or leading up to that day and then also even thinking about like you know Stephanie saying that he had creeped her out like did he creep her out because he was muttering things in response to something that only he could hear that he was like mm-hmm. physically like you know acting out against something that only he could feel or you know or what have you. Um, and so I wonder about like, like his experience with those yeah. things. Um, or was he experiencing paranoia and delusions and, and he was acting on those, you know, we think about different types of delusions and hallucinations. We think about command hallucinations. We think about delusions of control, delusions that somebody else is forcing them to act or somebody else has control of their body those are really, really hard to deal with. And paranoia especially is really, really hard to deal with. I personally find paranoia and delusions harder to treat than hallucinations because however distant it is from reality and the grounding in reality, there's still a small string connecting it to reality that that person will always bring it back to. And that's what gets so hard to challenge and to work with and whereas hallucinations are a whole different you know type style of working yeah yeah but even up to that you might have those other things going on that are driving behavior before you can get to the point of having hallucinations right yeah yeah so i want to talk about like the idea of like violence and aggression and schizophrenia and mental. before you do that i do have a i was that's my next question for you but i just wanted to um answer your question about like what the exact number is so um the comorbidity of substance misuse and severe mental illness in 1990 um, half of all patients in this particular study, which was a U.S. study that took place in the late 80s, uh, also had some kind of substance misuse disorder. So okay. you're talking 50% of this particular diagnosis population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, And then in the U.K., it was 36%, which is interesting that the, those numbers are so different. Um, but what that tells us is that in the U.S., at about the same time as Joey Skaggs was was dealing with his schizophrenia that half of people in the United States with a schizophrenia diagnosis also have a substance misuse disorder. 
Yeah. Yeah. So please talk about violence and schizophrenia. <laughs> I feel like this. Oh, sorry. I was looking at something. I feel like this is something that we have to talk about carefully yes. because it is important to talk about that people with mental illnesses are much more likely to be the victim of a crime than the perpetrator of the crime. And the majority of crimes committed by people with schizophrenia, psychosis, and related diagnoses, the crimes they commit are often related to substance abuse, poverty, and that sort of thing. Mm. I feel like I want to get that out of the way. Yeah, big time. But obviously, especially like this is the case that we're talking about, there are cases in which people with these diagnoses do engage in violence and engage in aggression Mm -hmm. most often that can be related to paranoia to delusions to the symptoms of the disorder themselves things like impulsive aggression command hallucinations and that sort of thing there's just there's a disintegration in their connection to reality that creates this lashing out Mm -hmm. most often very impulsively Sometimes it can be a misperception of something that somebody said. It can be that there was a command hallucination that told them to act on that, that they're paranoid that this person, you know, is doing something to them or will do something to them or holds a certain status that controls them. And that is what kind of creates the violent event that it is part of the disconnection from reality and that deserves treatment in in my opinion you know people will say well you know if you killed somebody you killed somebody blah 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 but from what it sounds like in the evaluations that this person went through this person was not in control of their mind at the time or their actions So it does happen, and I would be, you know, remiss to to act like or pretend like it doesn't happen. And, oh, no, this would never be that. That's not realistic. That's That's not advocacy, and that's not doing a service to literally anybody. Yes. Um, when it does happen, it deserves to be treated. And, and I think, like, related to that, I want to throw a, a couple of other numbers just to kind of really put this into some context. So mm-hmm. schizophrenia, according to the World Health Organization, affects approximately 24 million people or one in 300, as, and that is uh, 0.32% worldwide. And so that's a pretty rare or that's a pretty low number when it comes to mental health diagnoses. Yeah. It's, it's rare, but it's also not as rare as I feel like as I many would instinctually things. think, right? Because um, <laughs> nobody talks about it. Right. Yeah, nobody it's, talks it's, about it. I, and I, I have seen, because obviously I'm on a million groups and communities and ha- following hashtags and things like that. Yeah. Everybody is always talking about, oh, destigmatize mental health, blah, 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 blah. I have depression. I have anxiety wonderful that is very very important work Mm -hmm. but if you're going to talk about that you also have to talk about destigmatizing psychosis yes and and like you said these like what do you call it severe mental illnesses or what have you like those things need to be destigmatized as well i'm trying to find um this woman i follow on tiktok and if i can find it 
if I don't find it right now, I'll find it later. But um, she is somebody that posts videos about living with a schizophrenia diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really, really interesting. And I appreciate the work that she does to try to, you know, speak to her own experiences and destigmatize, you know, what she's gone through yeah. and goes through. And as we're talking about that, I'm always very interested in like language. Like I know the autistic community is very like identity first language. Mm-hmm. Um other communities have different kind of preferences on that. Yeah. I'm I'm curious what uh what that is with the schizophrenic community. Yeah, me too. Me too, cuz I think like it's one of those things that and I have no access to this to understanding this community, you know, other than like what I <laughs> what I can like try to find through like being somebody who does not have schizophrenia. Um, trying to engage with it in a, a positive and productive way to help people, right? Um, but I feel like it's one of those things that could really straddle that line, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. and probably where personal preference can make a big difference, I'd imagine. Um, because I think when you have like a heavily stigmatized issue like this, commu- finding community is that much harder, right? Um, oh my God, yes. So it's because you have to be able to admit what's what you are diagnosed with what you are dealing with and you have to be able to find community which is not going to be easy because so many people that have these particular illnesses are not treated well enough in our population to then be like part of a a normal social bracket right yeah yeah Yeah. anyway i know we're very very off topic i want to get back yeah i just wanted to i wanted to bring a couple more of those numbers home basically just to say like um it, it happens more often than I would have thought. Like, um, if one in 300 people are diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's obviously not the same thing. But uh, the disorder that my baby was diagnosed with is a one in 4,000 disorder. So yeah. schizophrenia is statistically more common than this particular disorder that my child has, which I like just the difference between those numbers just kind of blew my mind. Yeah. We're statistics people. We are. And we just like really fucking care a lot about a lot of things <laughs> that's the problem um <laughs> so we just we just care too much um so just to like round this all back to to what happened that day august 29th 1995 um obviously this is all conjecture about what joey skaggs's headspace was like he could have been dealing with a very mild end of schizophrenia symptoms he could have been dealing with very extreme end of schizophrenia symptoms um, his schizophrenia symptoms could have gotten worse over time or gotten better over time. We don't know. We don't know what his headspace mm-hmm. was like that day. We don't know the kinds of things he was saying or that Stephanie was hearing from him that day. But what we do know is that um, this diagnosis and the evaluations incurred as a result of this diagnosis or to lead up to this diagnosis were enough uh, that standing trial was not a possibility for him. Yes. And that I think we can make a pretty fair assumption that he would not, he, had he stood a, a jury trial with an insanity plea, he probably would have won. Yeah. I think the take home is he was not coherent or competent enough to understand the charges or to take part in his own defense. Which is not what? any in any way, shape or form a, a manner of condoning what he did. Because there's Correct. no condoning Correct. that. No. This is just, a, it's a why. And I think it's, with this case, we're kind of, like, 
fortunate to have the resources to be able to, I think, make a very strong, educated conjecture about the why in this case. And that's not often what we have, honestly. Yeah, yeah. But I think really what that what that makes me come back to is that, you know, this is a family that has undergone several compounding traumas, right? Like, it's not just mm-hmm. that that Stephanie was killed. It was that she was killed by a member of her own family. Mm-hmm. And so there's a ripple effect to this that I want to make sure that we appreciate as well, that this was like, because this was all so, so in such a tight circle of, of individuals that I just think the, the impact of that, it hits different than yeah. a stranger, you know? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. all of that to come back and just, you know, reiterate again that, like we said before, like this was not a case that got national coverage, barely any local coverage, research, very, very difficult to do. I tried, very difficult to do. (laughs) (laughs) You tried very hard. I did. But I just, again, like, I think it really represents, A, I want to create space for Stephanie's memory and I want it to be known that like, there are other people out in the world that care about Stephanie's memory, um, myself Mm -hmm. included. And, very much so, myself included, and that, you know, stuff, cases like this are your everyday cases, and that just, it sucks, but it's the truth, you know, and yeah, yeah, I just want to, I just want to make sure that we really kind of hammer that home, so, you know, I just want to kind of offer another of the yearbook poems for Stephanie, (laughs) kind of as we start to close out. Love it. And this one comes from Tisha Hoffman and Mindy Wrench. They write, Stephanie was special. This is true. She would never want to see us blue. So when we think of her, we can smile for we will only be apart for a little while. Stephanie was a good friend from the start. She will always be with us in our hearts. So when we get to heaven, this we can trust. She will be there at the Golden Gates waiting for us. And I just, my heart. It's sweet. It's just sweet. It really is. Yeah. So again, like, you know, as I close out, there's not, there's not a whole hell of a lot more to say about, you know, how the case kind of Mm -hmm. went down. Um, We, you know, Joey Skaggs is probably going to be within the care of the state of Illinois for the rest of his life would be my guess. Although he will be reevaluated continually. Um, And in that way, like, you know, there's, there's no, I don't know, like justice is a, it's, I don't think it's a big question here. Like we know who did it. We know we have a pretty good idea of why. um, And we know that he's probably where he ought to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It honestly sounds like it. Yeah. So um, as we close, I want to charge everybody who um, is thinking about and cares about this case to listen to a mid-90s country song today. Um, (laughs) I think kind of in tribute to her. Like, it's what she would have been doing this summer of 95. So honestly, like, what I have done to just kind of keep her in my mind is just I've Googled 1995 top country songs, 1994 top country songs, and just listened to a couple because... I want to give that 
tribute to her. So for copyright reasons, I don't think we'll probably splice one in because um, I don't want to go to jail. It. <laughs> try it. But I would just say, like, that's that's my nod to Stephanie. Um, I lit a candle for her at Notre Dame on her birthday. Um, yeah, she had a birthday a few weeks ago. And I've been listening to a lot of Martina McBride. Just, <laughs> I just want her to know, like, you know, that she's loved and she's thought of. So, yeah. She's in our hearts. And yeah. So is her family. Yeah. And that's what I got, my friend. So. Yeah. That was rough. Yeah. It is rough. Mm-hmm. It is rough. And um, I just hope that we gave it justice. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. And I really want to thank, like, her family um, for really kind of providing you with some of the information and for kind of giving, really giving us the blessing to tell her story. Yeah. 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 Because I, I asked and I wouldn't have done it if they said no. Um, yeah. But I'm grateful that they said yes because it was... I, I just felt like it deserved telling, you know? It did. It yeah. did. So, um, gosh, I'm trying to think about our timeline. Uh, what are we doing next time? Uh, next week, we are going to be doing Nico Jenkins. We are going to be uh, traveling right back to Omaha, Nebraska. Y'all can't get rid of me. <laughs> um, and we are going to do the start of a two-parter about Nico Jenkins, one of the most infamous spree killers in Nebraska history, and it is a story to tell, let me tell you. Girl. Um, we're going into detail. We already recorded part one. <laughs> so, so, like, we already know. <laughs> we already know. I mean, I knew because I did all the research for it, but and then I found Tommy out has some like, great Whoa. reaction faces. <laughs> Which you, you can't, can't see. see them, but you can hear her face. You can. I think my face is often heard, I feel. Um <laughs> All right, friends. So please come back for that. Uh, this episode actually is a really good springboard for Nico Jenkins because um, having a little bit of this backdrop in some of these mental health issues will help that case make a lot more sense. So uh, in some ways, maybe if anything makes that case make sense. Yeah. I mean, so far, nothing makes sense, but uh, I'm just trying to give a little olive branch of hope out into the world because that's what I do. But you're so sweet. I try. I try. So, friends, uh, in the meantime, please hang out with us on the socials. We are at MedWretched. Um, we do love a case suggestion. So um, we do. if you've got an inkling, feel free to send it our way. Um, and I will go to all the ends of the earth to make them happen if I have to. <laughs> so Catch her while she's unemployed. Yeah, right. I am partially employed. I do some freelance work. Um I'm not like a bum. Okay. I just want to make that clear. I also I will be professoring in the fall. Hell yes, you will be. Um, anyway, yes, we should sign out. We should. We should. We're rambling at this point. So friends, uh, be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. And listen to a country song for Stephanie today. I'm going to fade one in in the outro. Come at me, country music industry. Send your letters to her, not me. We have a shared email address. 
shit. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>